name's Greg Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian. If you would, uh, take your Bibles out, and we're going to move right into our uh, lesson portion, looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, look at the first eight verses, and then uh, verses 16 through 18 as well. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we'll start there. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, you have received, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for, many, for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Looking down at uh, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do uh, ask this day that you would lay bare our hearts, that you would reveal to us what the motivation of our actions, our thoughts, and our words so often is. And Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we might resemble Christ Jesus, and that a watching world might see Jesus in us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amazing thing about this passage is how clearly Jesus lays out what it is he's about to talk about. Uh, I don't know what motivates you. What motivates you from day to day when you were a child? What motivated you? Uh, I had a friend, a close friend uh, in, in junior high who hated to get up in the mornings, and so his mom would come in day after day and say, it's time to get up, it's, it's time to get up, maybe you've gone through that with your own kids. Day after day, he wouldn't, and so finally she got so tired of it, she went down to the kitchen, filled up a pot of water, put ice in it, and walked into the room and, and dumped it on him. Uh, from that point on, he got up immediately when she first called. Uh, so he was motivated by something. I don't know what motivates you in business, in your home. Uh, what motivates you to be here today? Why are you here this afternoon? What motivates you on a Sunday morning? What motivates you as you lie there in bed to open your word? What motivates you as you stand in the sanctuary uh, singing and praising? Uh, Christ Jesus deals heavily in this passage with what, what ought to motivate us. And he very clearly goes through a variety of things uh, answering these questions. Uh, what are we to do? Why are we to do it? Uh, why are we not to do it? What will our reward be uh, with wrong motives? And what will our reward be uh, with right motives? These are the things that he deals with in these passages. But he starts off with a very broad, uh, all-encompassing uh, warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, 
for then you will have no reward from your heaven, from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is speaking here basically to two audiences. He's speaking here uh, first and foremost to an audience um, of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, he longs to see them retrained and reclaimed and redeemed. Uh, people who are lost, uh, people who have been in a very real sense shepherdless. Um, the shepherds that they have have led them astray, have taught them improper things. So Christ is seeking to redeem them, seeking to retrain them, to redirect them. The second group are the Pharisees, the ones he calls hypocrites, the ones uh, who are the religious leaders of the times, but these are the ones who do their acts of righteousness in public. They do it with improper motives. They do it to be seen, to be recognized by those who are around them. Um, Christ is not saying don't do these things that we're about to talk about. Um, he doesn't even say don't do these things in public. He says don't do these things in public uh, for the wrong reasons, to be seen by men. The assumption is that they will do these things, uh, praying, fasting, uh, acts of service, uh, and that these will be public. Uh, these will be to help others, to be seen by others, but he's saying, or they will be seen, but he's saying don't do these things to be seen, to be recognized. He says that if you do that, you will get a reward. And he makes it very clear that there's a reward that they will receive. Um, he knows the hearts of the Pharisees. He knows the reason they're doing what they're doing is to draw attention to themselves. So again, this morning, why do you do what you do? If you're here today, why are you here? Uh, if you attend church on a Sunday, why do you go? Christ is not necessarily or primarily dealing here with how we're to do these deeds or the what of these deeds or the frequency that these deeds are done but the why of these deeds. And so again, I ask the question, what is to be our motivation for why we do these acts of righteousness? What is to motivate our heart? Why are we called to do these things? And in whose power are we called to do these things? He talks about three things here. The first in verses two through four, he talks about giving, sacrificial giving. Verse two, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their rewards. When I first read this, I thought that, that Christ was simply using this idea of sounding a trumpet as a euphemism for drawing attention to yourself. But I came to realize that they were actually those in this time who would pay trumpeters, instrument-carrying people, to sound a trumpet when they were doing their acts of service. It would pay someone to sound a trumpet when they walked in to draw attention. It would be like uh, uh, in England when the queen comes in and, and the band plays or the, the trumpeter plays or the president walks in. It's to draw attention to who it is is coming in the room. Imagine doing a service project in Macon and you've paid someone to sound a trumpet blast every time you, another stroke of paint goes on the wall. A trumpet bat blast goes on uh, whenever you teach someone in a VBS. This is, in essence, what, what, what Christ is speaking against here. The attention was drawn to the person doing the action, and Christ is speaking against this. Why do we serve? Why do we serve? Have you been on a missions trip? Have you served in this community? Do you serve at a soup kitchen? Why do you hand someone a $5 bill as you're walking down the street and they've said that they haven't had anything to eat in days. What motivates us? 
to acts of service. Because I think Christ speaks heavily here again, service for the sake of service. Simply serving for the sake of serving. Uh, it is short-lived. Uh, even though it benefits someone, the, the, the impact can be very short-lived. Ultimately, service, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to serve to bring glory to God. We are serve to alleviate suffering, yes, and pain and poverty. Uh, but there has to be a higher goal than that than than, uh, than simply that. Our desire, what motivates us as we serve, ought to be that this person we are serving, this group of people that we are serving, would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Service is wonderful. We need to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. We need to help people. We need to go and alleviate suffering, take care of the sick, the homeless, the needy, the poor. But if we simply go to just alleviate these difficulties, then we've almost rob, rob them of what their true need is. We go in the name of Jesus Christ. We go in the power of Jesus Christ. We go to, to serve, and that service is a conduit uh, to something far greater, something eternal, that this person might truly know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because whatever person in this world, whatever needs they have from small uh, minute needs to the, to the greatest needs that they might have are far outweighed than the eternal need that they have. Any person who is hungry, who is starving, who is in need of clothing, those are, those are needs that we need to seek to work towards alleviating, but we need to also provide a conduit for them to know what their greatest need is, and that's reconciliation with God the Father. Because we can clothe, and we can feed, and we can give, and those are important things. I don't want to diminish those. But those need to be uh, on the way towards something even greater. Because as we provide for the needs of people, if we simply leave them there, we've perhaps fed them for a day, perhaps for a week or a month or a year. We've closed them. We've, we've taught them how to do these things themselves. And those are important things. But those will end at the end of time. Those will end when they no longer in this world. And then they will be standing before their Heavenly Father. And their far greater need is their offense against a righteous God. Our far greater need is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So our acts of service need to be a conduit through which we are pointing them to Jesus Christ. Christians during the time of, uh, um, of Christ and beyond were known for their compassion. They were known, uh, in, uh, they were known for their acts of service. During Roman times, oftentimes uh, there was a form of a, a, a post-birth abortion. If you didn't want your child, you would simply take your child and throw it onto the trash heap in the city dump. And Christians were known for going and taking these children, rescuing them, adopting them, and either finding homes or raising them themselves. And so Christians have been known throughout history for their acts of service and kindness, but it's always with the deeper motive of people knowing Jesus Christ. Christ here is talking about service that is motivated by something far more than just drawing attention to ourselves. And what ought this motivation to be? What should drive it? How can we serve with the right motivation? 2 Corinthians 8.5 says, And they did not do as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's 
will. What can drive us towards a proper motivation for service has to be first and foremost that we have a relationship with Christ. It says, first, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us in keeping with the Lord's will. What ought to motivate us first and foremost is that we have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been rescued. We have been adopted. We've experienced God's grace. That propels us with the proper motivation. We are motivated to serve and to give because we have experienced that grace first. Christ says here that they will be rewarded, those who, uh, who uh, serve in this way, as the hypocrites do. They will receive praise and admiration. Mark 8, 36 says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What is it, you, can, you can substitute the words, What does it profit a man to gain the acclaim and recognition of the entire world for his acts of service and yet lose his soul? Because when we serve to please man, even when we just serve to meet the needs of man, apart from God, then those acts are temporal, are temporary. When we do these things, we do it in our own strength, in the strength of man, not for God's glory, in essence for our own at times. And so God is saying that when you, as the hypocrites did, as the Pharisees did, when you serve to draw attention to yourself, you will receive a ward, you'll be recognized, you'll be lifted up, acclaimed for those things, but it will cease. Maybe when you die, maybe when those people that you've helped die, Certainly at the end times, when Christ comes back and this world is no more, it will end. It will cease. So Christ says, don't serve in this way, in a way where there is no reward in heaven. Because when our reward is to draw attention to ourselves, our motivation is revealed. When we serve in the power of Christ, when we serve for God's glory, we're given by the Holy Spirit the power to do these things. And the the lasting effect can be eternal. When someone's needs that have been met by a believer in Jesus Christ propels them, launches them forward in a relationship with Christ, that is eternal. And that is wondrous. So what is the ultimate reason for these acts of service? It is for God's glory. It is that we would see souls saved. We should be brokenhearted when we see those who are lost, when we see those who are suffering and hurting, when we see those who have no home, who cannot clothe themselves, who have no food, we should be broken for those physical, earthly needs, and we should seek to meet those needs, but always on the way to sharing with them, to pointing them to Jesus Christ, because it's almost cruel to provide for the needs, the physical needs of someone in this world, and ignore their spiritual need. As we share, as we go on missions trips, we go to spread the name of Jesus Christ. We've heard wonderful comments about going, those who have gone to New Zealand. They don't just go there to serve, to build, uh, to provide physical needs. They do those things, but it's a road, it's a pathway to sharing with people their greatest needs. Jesus Christ and reconciliation with God the Father. Verse 3 says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, a euphemism for don't do it in an ostentatious way, in a, in, a, in a highly publicized way. Take the focus off of how you're doing it and who you are. 
We see Christ doing wondrous acts of service. Mark 6, when Jesus landed and saw a huge crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Later it goes on and says, he gave them something to eat. Christ went to the people because they needed a savior. As he went, he also took care of their physical needs. He served them. When he fed the 5,000, he was teaching them. And as he taught, they grew hungry. So he provided through the loaves and the fishes for their physical needs. What about us? Do we serve? Do we serve in an unrecognized way? Can we serve? Are we willing to serve with no recognition, with no one lifting up our name, with our names being forgotten, with our names being taken off a list? Can we serve in that way? Verse 4 says, So that your giving may be in secret, and your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Again, a reward is promised. When we serve and are motivated for our own needs and our own desires and our own reputation to be built, God says you'll be rewarded. Oftentimes you'll be given that acclaim. Oftentimes you'll be given that recognition, but it will end. And it won't have an eternal value. So it certainly will end. But he goes on, Christ says that when we give, when we serve, in secret, when the emphasis is placed on God's glory, and helping and loving our fellow man, that they might know Jesus Christ, God says there will be a reward. Salvation and eternity with the Father have been secured for us through Jesus Christ. We can receive no greater reward. It's been secured on the cross through Jesus Christ and his blood and his righteousness. So your reward is in heaven and it is waiting for you and it's unearned. It's a gift The Lord calls us now out of overflow of love and gratitude and grace towards other people and desire to see others come to know him. He says, now go and serve. And there is a reward that we get as we go and serve. It's not salvation. We don't work for that. But we receive the reward of getting the privilege of seeing others come to know Christ, of serving our fellow man. We get the privilege of seeing those believers in heaven one day and reigning with them and living with them for eternity. And we receive the wondrous gift one day through Jesus Christ, certainly, when the Father says, well done, good and faithful servants. The second thing that Christ talks about here is is prayer, and I've spent most of my time on that first one. These next two are very much connected to the first, so I won't spend as much time here, but uh, verses uh, 5 through 15 talk about prayer. That self-discipline, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received your reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, pray as the Father, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Why do we pray? We pray because we long for a deeper communion with the Father. We pray because God has promised to hear our prayers as we pray in his name. And we lift up the needs of ourselves and others that they might know God, that they might have their needs met in him. Luke 18 also talks about the Pharisees, one who stood up and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. 
Verse 13 in that section says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What motivated the two different kinds of prayers? One was a self-righteousness, a sense of, I don't need anyone else. I can do it myself. His prayers were laced with pride. But this second man, the tax collector, recognized his sin, his desperate need of Christ Jesus, and his prayers reflected that as well. We see it in Luke 15 with the prodigal son, the older son who was motivated uh, by, by duty, uh, by simply um, uh, striving, and the younger son who was motivated, who came back broken and humbled. Christ's life of prayer is very clearly marked out for us. Mark 1, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Christ himself prayed to his Father because of the communion, because of the fellowships that he longed to maintain, but he did it in private. It was between he and his heavenly Father. He didn't stand on the corners. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. How many of us have heard, or perhaps even given, lofty prayers? We feel that the, the, the words that we choose, they have to be $20 words for it to really be effective. We've heard these long soliloquies, or perhaps even these long sermonettes in a prayer. And I think there are times where, like my three-year-old son, who barely speaks English, his prayers are unintelligible at times and mumbled and muffled, but there's a sincerity there as he speaks to God. And the simplicity of it as he lifts up his prayers perhaps is more received and accepted than the longest and most eloquent prayers that some offer, perhaps even us. Christ then goes into the third thing, fasting, this idea of self-denial. But when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that, they, uh, that their fasting may be seen by many. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head with, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by the Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Why do we fast? Do we fast? I think it's a lost discipline that so many of us push to the side. This idea of fasting, of, of abstaining from food for a, a period of time, that we might during that time, during that time of, of hunger and discomfort, it might drive us to our Father. It, it might remind us when our stomach starts to gurgle and make noise, when the, when the hunger starts to, to seep into our throats. It's to remind us of our need for, for, uh, uh, of the Father. And if we go back to the Lord, we spend that time, instead of eating, we spend that, that time praying. Matthew 4 talks of, of Christ who went fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. Have you ever fasted? Is fasting a discipline that we've taken on? That Not that we might be seen by others as, as some spiritual giant, but that we might know our Father better, that we might fall on our knees in desperate need of that Father. Just to wrap up, Christ very clearly lays out in a wonderful uh, teaching time here, uh, what are we to do? He tells us we're to serve and to pray and to fast. He assumes that those are disciplines that believers have. Why are we to do it? For God's glory and to know our Father more deeply. 
Why are we not to do it? He makes it very clear to seek the praise of men. What, what will our reward be for doing these things with the wrong motives? Earthly and short-lived rewards. What will our reward be for doing these things with the right motive? Motivated by a love for the Father. Motivated in the power of the Spirit. What reward will we receive knowing the Father better and participating in an eternal harvest that he calls us to? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have called us to pray and to fast and to serve. You've also called us to do these things with pure motives, and we cannot. We long for the approval of man, for the attention of man, and our hearts are wicked at times in these areas, and we find ourselves struggling to pray purely, to to serve with right motives, to fast, even to fast. Father, I pray that you would remind us of Christ Jesus, that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He lived that righteous life. Our reward in heaven is secure because of what he's done. But Lord, I pray that you would motivate us through Christ's example, through his power, to do these things because we long to know you and we long for others to know you as well. We pray in his precious name. Amen.